Welcome to Alec Across the States. I'm your host, Dan Reynolds. Today we're going to be discussing education, how it relates to COVID-19, and particularly we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of higher ed. What happens after you graduate from high school, go to college, and what's going on right now when it comes to coronavirus? We've got three great guests for our listeners today. First, I have Armand Alakbe. He is the Vice President of Trustee and Government Affairs at the American Council of Trustees and Alumni. Armand, thank you so much for calling in. Oh, thanks for, for having me. And we have Lindsay Burke. She is the Director of the Center for Education Policy and the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Heritage Foundation. Lindsay, thanks again for calling in. Thanks for having me back. Of course. And as always, for all of our ALEC Education Conversations here on the ALEC Podcast, we have Scott Kaufman, the ALEC Director of the Education and Workforce Development Task Force. Scott, thanks so much for calling in and organizing this whole conversation. Thank you, Dan. Of course. So just to, let's say, set the stage a little bit and start us off, I think there's definitely a general conception out there in the world, in the ether, maybe from education, who knows, but that the Department of Education is the most important thing when it comes to higher ed. We're the state-focused premier policy podcast. How does higher education relate to the states? How does it relate to state legislators, state governors, or to state policy in general? So the primary way that I see that, that states play a role in public higher education is, um, you, know, you know, obviously appropriations is one issue, but just general accountability, right? A lot of what happens in the public and private sector, quite frankly, in, in higher ed happens at the institutional level. Um, boards of trustees, boards of regents, you know, the, the same lay governance structure exists both ways. The only difference really is that in at least two-thirds of the states, uh, governors will uh, appoint the members of the governing board, but a, a lot of those positions happen really locally, which is kind of the ideal, really. So to continue on to that, right now we're in the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. How has or how was higher education been positioned to weather something like we're dealing with today, the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, I would say it really hasn't been well positioned to weather this pandemic whatsoever. And, you know, our mom's exactly right. The states play such a critical role in the governance of higher education. Of course, there's direct state appropriations for public colleges and universities. But if we think about the totality of funding, you mentioned earlier that, that you know, people think the Federal Department of Ed is the sort of be-all, end-all with higher ed financing, but states play a huge role in that. Where the feds come in is through the uh, student loan and grant market. Today, the federal government originates and services 90% of all student loans. I mean, that's just an incredible market share, right? It's really a near monopoly in student lending. And so, of course, that has crowded out the private sector and has left taxpayers incredibly exposed to that student loan market, which right now is quite volatile. And if we think about how all of that intersects with the pandemic, I mean, the coronavirus has impacted every single source of revenue on which colleges and universities rely. Um, the National Association of Scholars put out a report recently on this. And in that report, they noted that Moody's Investor Service has actually downgraded education's credit outlook to negative for higher ed. I mean, that, you know, if you think about all of the ways that that will impact higher ed, it'll mean less favorable terms likely for borrowing and for bonds. And that impacts higher ed's bottom line. If we think about things like recent stock market declines, that can impact university endowments. 
will likely see reductions in the revenue generated from tuition and room and board. And so really every aspect of higher ed revenue will be impacted. And that includes, I would add, things like charitable contributions to higher education also being impacted. Armand mentioned the state appropriations. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, declines in tax revenue resulting from this just overall economic downturn that's likely going to impact those state appropriations. And I, I guess I'd add one last thing, which is that we're now even seeing things like class action lawsuits being brought on behalf of students against universities because those students are requesting tuition refunds. So there are so many different ways in which it's being impacted right now that it's going to be very interesting from a policy perspective just to see long-term the extent to which universities, particularly those middle-tier institutions, can weather the storm. You know, you mentioned uh, class action lawsuits. It reminds me, I think there was a Saturday Night Live sketch recently that dealt with recent graduates and the punchline was something to the effect of, hey, it's just like a pay full freight, but it's just like going to a completely online university just with worse tech support. And so, I mean, it's kind <laughs> of a, you know, it, it, it's you know, a little tongue in cheek, but you know, the, the you know, what is the, um, schools really weren't prepared for this. Now, of course, nobody was actually fully prepared for this. I mean, I don't think anyone right. can really blame hired for having a, you know, global pandemic isn't exactly on the, the top 10 things to be thinking about, you know, when planning for a new school year. But you also you know, keep in mind, like this this happened at a time when we were already you know, beginning to see some pressures at the beginning. Um, you mentioned Moody's um, downgrading uh, the, the sector. Well, it actually just came back to stable. That was downgrading to negative from stable, from which was getting back from negative, you know, just a couple of years back. So there have mm-hmm. been some issues, you know, over over the past few years. But I mean, look at it this way. So um, Clayton Christensen predicted this was I think in 2011 that uh, half of all colleges would close within 15 years. And so what the, the risk here is that what's happening now is kind of an accelerant to, to all this. So, I mean, what's, what's really scary is that, you know, when we talk about sensitivity to tuition revenue changes, the cash flow that universities have will be highly dependent on decisions that enrollment decisions that are being made right now, you know, in May of 2020, where, where things are very still uncertain. And so that uncertainty just on a, on a part of everything is throwing the whole enterprise out of whack. But again, this is a, this is a, an overlay to I mean a lot of other underlying things. I mean, um, so was it McMurray College in Illinois? They think they just announced uh, they were closing permanently after uh, I think 174 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, but they were already in financial straits at the time, and you know the president was talking about how that this is a that the pandemic was really the last straw. They were working on getting emergency financing to, to be able to, to continue operations. So there's, there's the question is, is this an outlier, right? You know, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's, there's a, there's a lot of evidence to say that there, are, there is some level of instability already there in higher ed. Yeah, I think that's right. I would just add, as I said earlier, higher ed has needed to get its fiscal health in order for a long time. And, you know, nobody wants to see colleges and universities go underwater as a result of this pandemic. But I think that's right, that in some cases, this has been an accelerant for those universities to face that fate, quite frankly. So now I really think it's a matter of, for so many of these institutions, survival, not so much, you know, how will they thrive moving forward, but what do they need to do immediately to survive? And, you know, I am, I'm an optimist. And so I do think that as part of what we may see, I am hesitant to call it a silver lining whatsoever, but at least from the college revenue perspective, for some of these colleges, they might actually see an uptick in enrollment 
because we know historically that when the economy is bad, that people tend to, to go back to school either to, to pursue that BA that they hadn't pursued before or to pursue uh, higher education in the form of master's or, or postdoc degrees or postdoc experiences. So we'll see. That might actually increase the number of, of students who end up enrolling over the next year or so. But I, I think right now, you know, the overwhelming evidence we have is that all of these issues that the coronavirus has created is going to be to the detriment of these universities' bottom lines in the near term. Maybe the question is, you have to ask is, I mean, is that going to be enough, right? This isn't the first mm-hmm. time we've seen a significant shock to the system. Like the, the whole thing you're, you mentioned about people going to school kind of as a safe harbor, you know, during hard economic times. I mean, yeah. in, in 08 during the financial crisis, right? And, and I mean, what really changed since then? I mean, you, you, you had, you know, what really changed in the way that higher ed spent, you know, its finances? You know, I think that, uh, you know, non-instructional spending went up dramatically, actually, you know, uh, since then, since, since, 2010, I think it's gone up you know, 35% since then. So I, I don't know if that was supposed to be the wake-up call or if this could even serve as one. I mean, again, you're, you're going against this foundation of, you know, how did we, how did we get here? And I'm, by here, I'm not talking about, you know, the pandemic, but just being in a vulnerable position, you know, pre-COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So you've, you've mentioned the the precarious position that that universities and colleges are in, although there seems like there might be some opportunity there, but I'm seeing talks of bailouts. I'm, I'm seeing articles about it. Should we, should we be bailing out universities and colleges right now? <laughs> what, what should they be doing? So we should absolutely not be bailing out colleges and universities right now. Every single sector of society is hurting at the moment. It's not just schools, right? We see at the K-12 level, special interest groups, asking for federal bailouts for K-12 schools. We see the same thing happening in the higher ed space as well. Uh, Colleges and universities looking to Washington to get bailed out, which is completely not only inappropriate, but of course ends up battling future generations with more debt that nobody can afford right now. And so that's something we should absolutely avoid. Higher ed already got about $14 billion in the phase three CARES Act. And so any phase four (laughs) is under consideration needs to avoid any additional bailouts. Um, I know Armand probably has lots and lots of ideas on what colleges should be doing, but um, I'll throw out one just to beat into the punch, <laughs> which is that I think that uh, boards of regents and trustees really do need to take their fiduciary responsibility seriously and call on colleges to manage their budgets responsibly. Um, this is something so ACTA has this fantastic tool called How Colleges Spend Money. It's a website a really good starting place for higher ed folks to really delve into how colleges are spending their money. They have information on something like, I think, Armand, 1,500 colleges and universities across the country. Yes. And you outline everything you could ever want to know, spending patterns and instructional and administration spending. So I think a really good first step would be for trustees to actually leverage that information, look at that data and ensure that colleges aren't spending excessively on things like administration. You know, they should certainly freeze new capital expenditures. They should cut their non-faculty, non-teaching administrative overhead costs, which have increased uh, substantially over the past few years. So to me, that would be a really good place to start. Yeah, well, well thank you, Lindsay. I mean, so the site is howcollegesspendmoney.com. And, uh, you know, you I go. mentioned uh, McMurray College, right? This is the, um, earlier uh, in the podcast, but 
closing down, but you'd be able to see on their site that they, for years, they've been spending over 75 cents uh, per an administration for every dollar they spend on instruction, uh, which is 20 cents mm-hmm. more uh, than their peers, right? So, I mean, the, 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 really the, the big issue here is if we're going to have higher ed rely on institutional uh, level of governance, then, then well, institutional level governing boards really need to step up. And so, you know, I've spoken to a lot of trustees who, who serve on these boards, again, come from all areas of the community, but you know, they set on corporate boards with, you know, multi-million dollar enterprises. And yet, you know, they still tell me that they're, you know, they, they're confused as far as what they get as part of these college board meetings, you know, with regard to the budget. You know, it's not from lack of effort, right? The, the, it's that the, the culture of accountability isn't always there, right? For years, trustees have been told that you know, the primary role when you're serving on a board, uh, on the board of trustees is to, is, is to be a booster really, for the institution, to, to go to the football games, to, um, you know, to raise money. And, and really, they're supposed to be fiduciaries. And so you're, you're, it's not just an honorific. It is a you know, solemn responsibility. But I mean, you know, I, I look at this whole kind of where, you know, you know what do we do uh, from here kind of in terms of how do we get here? You know, uh, um, the hard thing about the education sector in general, um, and Lindsay, please correct me if I'm wrong, is, is that it, it, like one of the hard things, at least, is that it's difficult to quantify the benefit that we actually receive. You know, when you you go to college, you, you know, we have we have some metrics like earning capacity, you know, learning outcomes. Um, there are certain things you you know, certain benefits signaling, right? Like you you get a you get a degree from a certain college, and it's it's a it's just a you've checked the box, and if, and you have a professional network, and and it signals to employers, hey, you're qualified to do X, Y, and Z. But you know, you know, in, in times right now where we talk about what are what are what is essential, um, the hard part is that you have to tease out. It's hard to tease out what exactly is the essential cost? You know, what are the essential costs of a college education? And so what happens is, you know, you get all these other, you know, other things baked into what, how you define essential and you know, what, what defines the college experience. Is it, it's where, this is where you get the, the proverbial lazy rivers and the climbing walls and whatnot, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what's the first thing that you, 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 you notice when you walk onto a college campus? The buildings, right? I mean, we, we, we spend a ton in higher ed on, on construction. I mean, I mean, at least relative to other industries, I mean, we, um, $11.5 billion, um, record numbers, mm. you know, uh, recently. And, and we, we, we continue to grow. I mean, the square footage pursuit keeps growing, right? I mean, and, and I mean, walk onto a college campus, or at least if you walked onto a college campus on a Friday afternoon pre pandemic, you'd see pretty much similar things we would see today, which is not a whole lot of use <laughs> going on. Right. I mean, and, and so, and again, this all starts with the trustees. Like, how do you, how do you know that what you're doing and where all these funds are going is, is being used appropriately, right? I mean, and, and, and especially when you got something like tuition growing as fast as, as it is. I mean, I don't think there's, I'm not sure there are many people out there who are arguing that college is getting more affordable over time, right? Okay. So, yeah, I mean, these are all things that, that you know, really need to be looked at. Yeah, that, that's a critical point, just to underscore it, that there should be no under-enrolled sections at colleges right now. There should be no empty buildings on Friday afternoons because students only want to go in, you know, from 1 to 2 p.m. or whatever it might be. And so that that's something else that universities are definitely going to have to look at. And, you know, they should consider things like really fully enrolling online over the summer in the near term. Like this summer, they should put as many things online as they can it would be provided during the fall semester for first-year students. That's something else that they should consider. They should consider 
in some cases, consolidating uh, additional um, campus locations. If it's a big state university where it's feasible, they should think about sharing faculty resources among different universities, uh, both faculty and administrative resources. So there are lots of creative ways that universities can think about saving money and really sort of paring down those those overhead costs. Right. I mean, and, and we've seen this before, right? I mean, one of my favorite examples is Arizona State. When they when they restructure their whole way they look at departments, I think they served they saved excuse me um, recurring thirteen million a year and without and here's the kicker without eliminating faculty lines. I mean and that that's kind of the the win win hopefully is how do we how do we deliver what we do what is essential and this you know, hopefully I mean if there's a silver line we'll we'll really force institutions to 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 do that. Okay. Well, we're, we're running short on time, so I'm going to combine my last two questions. And since you already brought up silver linings, I want to jump to that. I, I mean, how should higher education be responding to this? What is the silver lining? Are there positives that can come out of this? And then I was also going to ask you about student loans. And so, I mean, sh- what should we be doing about student loans? What's the positive? Is there a positive that can come out of this on that front as well? Yeah, so I, I think Armand hit the nail on the head a second ago on the sort of positive side of this, which is that this should encourage universities to get back to basics, right? Like the very core of what they do, providing excellent instructional content. And then this will, I think, catalyze them to think about that delivery in a creative way, right? I mean, every sector of American life is having to rethink how they operate, right? We're seeing telework really expands rapidly and universities aren't insulated from that. So they need to think about getting back to their core mission of academic excellence, providing uh, content to students and doing that in a way that is online and continues to enable social distancing uh, for the foreseeable future. Just quickly on the loan piece, I think right now the big question is, will there be a phase four bailout for higher ed? And we've already covered that no, there absolutely should not be, and there will certainly be a push for it. But we should just keep in mind, right, as policymakers in Washington and special interest groups are trying to do a bailout for higher ed, but it is still the case today that two-thirds of Americans do not have bachelor's degrees. And it is those two-thirds of Americans who will have to pay for the cost of that bailout, right? They're going to have to pay for policies that support, if you will, the education of the, you know, one-third of Americans who have bachelor's degrees and will presumably down the road earn more than them. So not only is it a drain on the economy, not only does it saddle future generations with debt, but it would be a really inequitable way to think about how to weather this current storm. So that does bring us a little bit to the end of our segment here today on Alec Across the States. I do want to give both of you guys just one last moment. Um, we are the State Focus Premier Policy Podcast. Alec is the largest nonpartisan voluntary organization of state legislators. So most of our listeners are state legislators or people who are really interested in state policy and making sure those solutions are right. What would you guys want to leave with them? What's your takeaway? What do people who care about state policy or more importantly, what do state legislators need to know from this conversation? Well, I I would say two things that uh, one of the ways in which uh, policymakers and trustees and folks who serve on boards really get pushed to actually do the the deep dives into university budgets is when they hear from people. So I would just say in general, you know, parents, taxpayers, students, whoever it might be, 
should make their voices heard about right-sizing university budgets. At the state level, so putting all the federal stuff aside, at the state level, if states end up increasing spending on higher ed uh, as a result of the pandemic, when they do that, they need to make sure they're doing it in a way that supports those core academic functions, but it's not continuing this long road of administrative bloat that we've seen for quite a few years now. And again, if the federal government does a bailout, they should not do a bailout. But if it does come to that, money needs to go directly to students and not favor institutions. And so that would be my big takeaway. But the action really is in the state where it should be for education policy generally all the time. <laughs> so I think from a um, from the perspective of accountability and, and just, just a reminder that legislators are not the ones who set tuition. You know, it is it is the institutions and also more more importantly, the boards of trustees, the boards of regents who are signing you know, on the dotted line as far as approving uh, the budgets, approving you know, what the tuition, tuition hikes, whatever, you know, whatever it be. And I think it's important to, 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 to remember that role that they, that they serve, that they serve a fiduciary role. This is not an honorific. This is something that um, if they, you know, they need to be able to justify just as much as, um, as, as the university as to why we need you know, X funds for this project. So again, hopefully this is a return to, um, or at least just a reminder that the trustee role really is the fiduciary. Well, you've been listening to another great episode of Alec Across the States. I've been your host, Dan Reynolds. I've been sitting down with Armand Alec Bay, who is the Vice President of Trustee and Government Affairs at the American Council of Trustees and Alumni. Armand, thank you so much for calling in. Thank you. And also Lindsay Burke, who is the director of the Center for Education Policy and the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Heritage Foundation. Lindsay, thanks so much for calling in again. Thanks for having me. And as always, on all of our education conversations, we have Scott Kaufman, the ALEC Director of the Education and Workforce Development Task Force. Scott, once again, thank you so much for calling in and helping to organize this whole conversation today. Thank you. And if you are interested in having your ideas featured on ALEC Across the States, do not hesitate to email us at acrossthestates at alec.org. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at ALEC States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.